We cannot go through a day without the digital world impacting our existence. If students don't have the survival skills of navigating the digital life, they won't survive in this modern world. This three-part series will help us help students create digital survival skills. And in this episode, we're trying to understand how digital technology is shaping students' worlds and relationships. I'm Jeff Eckert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. I want you to think about four major world-changing events in human history. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus. Number two, Constantine's conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity. Number three, Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. And number four, the dawn of the internet and smartphone age. If you think about things that have affected human history, we are at the beginning of a revolution in humanity when we're thinking about the internet, we're thinking about the smartphone, we're thinking about that technology and what it does to influence our lives today. Jason, you had a fifth moment as well, right? The invention of sliced bread. Oh yeah, we should have added that to the list. How do you make sandwiches without sliced bread? That's true. That's true. Okay, five things. I mean, that's so cliche. So I would imagine you'd want to include it into your so list. cliche and yet so true. So true. It affects our daily lives. So we're talking about technology. We're talking about the digital life, and in this series, we're going to be talking about how. We can help students create digital survival skills. This is our first episode back for season four. We're so excited to do this with you. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. We're looking back on last season, and Jason, I want to know, what was your favorite episode last season? There was a number of episodes that were my favorite, because that's just buying me time to think about what one is my most favorite. I'd say Grape. No, not flavor, episode. Oh, uh, episode. Um, well, I would say the episode with Kara Powell or the episode with Dan Seaborn. I always love to talk to experts in their field. And so you have Kara Powell talking about growing young, the church relationship with youth ministry, as well as the, the overall church. And then you had Dan Seaborn talking about parents and his expertise in that world. And so I, those two. We're good. What about you, Jeff? Well, you, thanks for asking. Yeah, I wanted to <laughs> knock that question back towards your way and see what was your favorite. Wow, you're so polite. The one that stands out to me is the episode of Dream Fulfilled, the story of Matt Locke and Will Ford. Incredible. And both are, are very dear friends. So we want to encourage you. These episodes, the others, if you haven't listened to them, go back. They're great episodes. We went and looked back. We were just curious what was the most listened to. It actually was the Dream Fulfilled. Yep. And then the Anthem Protest episode was next. And then the interview with Kara Powell was uh, the next most listened to from last season. So go back, check it out. We want to encourage you to do that. And again, we're so grateful for our growing audience and you being a part of what we're doing. And we're ex- excited to jump into a new season with new listeners. I hope you're new. If you're not new... Keep listening. If you're new, you have no idea who else is listening. So we don't know if you're new or not. 
we just want to welcome you into the fold. Yeah, thanks for joining us if you're new to this podcast, The Thought Factory. And as always, we have our uh, social media feeds. We have a companion blog. So if you go to neverthesame.org slash B-L-O-G blog, you can find companion articles that go with each episode that dig a little bit more into the research. So especially if you're a numbers or research or detail person, these will be very helpful as you continue to dive into what we're talking about on each episode. So check those out. Also on social media, if you go to Never the Same, you can look up our organization uh, and you can find out more about what we're doing as well as interact with us here as well. Today's episode is on screen science. Weird. No, I didn't say weird science, oh, I was Jeff. I just you... thinking screen science, but I won't do it. You just, yeah. I okay. just did. Yeah, okay. We're asking the question, how is the digital world impacting us physiologically, psychologically, and relationally? So we took a look at the science of the screens we are looking at, and we plan to consult Chris McKenna's expertise on the topic of the digital life. He has started Protect Young Eyes. You can find all sorts of information at protectyoungeyes.com. So great to have Chris McKenna with us. He is an incredible resource for adults, parents, youth workers when it comes to being on the front edge of this digital world and how it impacts students. So again, protectyoungeyes.com. Check it out. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Love working with you guys. So in spite of what they say, it's awesome. I don't know who they are, but they aren't saying a whole lot. Well, it's all the secretaries. Oh. Yes. <laughs> there we go. We're talking about, before we started recording, how the word secretary just doesn't get used anymore. We're trying to figure out It's why. offensive. It is offensive. So you just offended a lot of people, Chris. I, did. I apologize. Sorry. Before they even get to know you. So before we it's get Chris, I have, a, I have a totally random question, but we're going to be talking about the digital world here. Yeah. Do you allow devices besides your phone that listen to you, like, so Alexa or things like that? Are they listening? Are you allowing those things in your home, Chris? That's what I want to know. None of those devices are in our home, nor would I allow them to be in our home. What would be your reason for not allowing them to be in your home? Ner <laughs> nervousness, possibly. I feel like we're getting into conspiracy territory here, <laughs> Chris. Are. They're listening. Go back to my question. They can't see the look on my face. But are they listening? <laughs> I believe they are gathering more information than I want them to know about me. My wife sent me something the other day because there's a, a smart TV hack that she showed me how someone could go in and they can watch you through your TV. Interesting question. I was just curious. It just kind of popped up as we're jumping yeah. into this episode here. So in this the next few episodes, Chris is going to be joining us, and we're doing this series called The Digital Life, and we're going to be talking about some different aspects of that. And one of the things that, that uh, Chris was sharing with us earlier that I want to jump back into when it comes to this idea of screen science is... Some of the some of the things that you're seeing, some of the trends in the technology industry about the effect of screen usage and time on particularly young people and students. That's right. I read a terrifyingly fascinating book last year called Glow Kids by Dr. Nicholas Cotteras. If any of you in ministry are listening to this. I think it'd be very beneficial. It's um, not written from a faith-based approach at all. He's a doctor, purely scientific, but I think that's what's most interesting about it is it's a purely objective, peer-reviewed approach to what 
we are finding screen time is doing to kids. And, and why we haven't done anything to this point is we, we haven't had enough of a test sample to know the true impact. As we were speaking about earlier, Jeff, the iPhone was released in 2007, so just over 11 or so years ago. So we now are seeing the results of a generation that grew up with the iPhone uh, fully at their disposal for all of their formative years. There's a lot of directions we could go with screen time, but I just last night saw a Wall Street Journal article that was titled, Science is Now Starting to Equate Teaching a Kid How to Use an Electronic Device is Like Teaching Them How to Enjoy Just a Little Bit of Cocaine. In other words, the impact that a glowing screen has on the dopamine reward system in the brain of a child has similarities to the dopamine reward process that you would discover in the brain of somebody using cocaine. And this book, Glow Kids, goes through comparisons to the levels of dopamine that are released during certain behaviors, whether it's drug consumption, eating a piece of chocolate, sex, all these things that our brain interprets as stimuli that then creates this reward uh, engine sort of revving up, dopamine is behind all of that. And what they discovered was that certain types of screen usage by children produces the same level of dopamine as sex in adults, right? And so we are exposing these very young brains, unfortunately, at a time when the brain is most formable, right? The brain is plastic, as they say, or shapeable throughout our entire life. But it is extremely shapeable during ages, say, 5 to 15, those formative years, right? And that's why so many people, when they maybe go through a therapeutic experience as an adult, the therapist is typically unpacking things that happen during their formative years because so much of who we become is established foundationally during those 5 to 15 age years, and so unfortunately, that's when we are putting, arguably, the most dangerous piece of equipment that's ever been placed in the hands of children is during this time when their brain is most susceptible to its impact. It's become the portable TV. It used to be back in the day, TV was the digital babysitter. Mm-hmm. But now it seems like we're just so much more mobile as a society. Everywhere parents go, they've got a digital device. So they have this portable babysitter everywhere they go, which can make it very convenient, but it's definitely something to be thinking about as a parent. Definitely. Chris, have you seen in the research of the last 10 years, the results of maybe a from a five-year-old to a 15-year-old, and has there been any, like, what is happening to our brain because of the exposure to these screens? Maybe easier to answer that question in terms of some of the behaviors that we're seeing children exhibit as a result of some of those exposures that are showing a trend line radically different than pre-iPhone. So, for example, there was a study released in 2015, I believe, it's in a blog post um, at Protect Young Eyes, that talks about for girls ages 11 to 14, the number of them that have committed suicide has tripled since the release of the iPhone. Now, 
As with most issues when it comes to teenagers, we can't prove causation because it's unethical to try to prove suicide through a process of causation in teenagers. Nobody wants to be responsible for that scientific study. But it's an interesting correlation that you can look at some of these behaviors and look at uh, you know a, a timeline and go, that's when the iPhone was released. And what a coincidence that the number has tripled since that time when compared to before, you know, before that time. Another one that's really slippery to put your hands on because it's really hard to know. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, Chris, what's the average age of when kids are first exposed to pornography? And you really don't know. I mean, nobody knows the exact age, but I think we can all agree that it's too early and most of them are seeing it without intentionally looking for it, right? So the internet is a is constantly just one or two clicks away in the hands of kids to things that we definitely don't want them to see. And so I think we can all agree that two young kids are seeing too mature of content way too young. So I think these are some of the, the behaviors, and we could do an entire episode on what happens when young kids are exposed to pornography too early. I think one of the primary results from that is peer-on-peer sexual abuse. That's one of the primary um, behaviors that has increased just significantly now that young people are seeing these horrific acts on a screen earlier than ever. Again, neurologically, during a period of their life when their brains are programmed to act out the things that they see. That's different than adults. We process things that we see and analyze things that we see, but young children have mirror neurons that compel them to do what they see. That's why they learn things so quickly. They're a bunch of little copycats. Any of us who have raised kids as parents know that. Unfortunately, that's why we see so many kids acting out sexually on other kids. Chances are they were exposed to pornography and are just exhibiting that behavior in real life. So I think these are some of the just the, the, the unfortunate outcomes. And what we say at Protect Young Eyes is technology has had this unfortunate acceleration of maturity downward and a deceleration of maturity upward, meaning through early exposure and putting devices in young kids' hands too early, we have erased childhood and have accelerated adulthood by kids seeing information and being exposed to things they're just not ready for. Young kids know a lot more than young kids did. Like, like you know, I, I joke around that fifth grade is the new 10th grade, right? If you think back to when we were kids. On the other side of that maturity spectrum, primarily due to young men who become engrossed in video games or their online experiences and are trading real life, which is sometimes hard for a virtual life, whether that be relationally or in video games, it's decelerating maturity upwards where they're finding excuses not to engage with real life and not to get a real job and to continue to hang out in the basement. So it, it's having this opposite effect on young kids and young adults in very unfortunate ways. The combination of the dawn of the internet and the invention of the smartphone, that combination certainly as we're in the middle of that right now historically will be looked back upon and 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 be known as a time where it really changed humanity i mean it's an incredible invention we look back to things like the printing press and other uh just life 
altering inventions, you know, the discovery of electricity and so on. And thinking of that, you had talked earlier before, again, before we recorded about what the Internet really is designed and programmed to do to us. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. We used to measure culture change and sort of generational trends in terms of decades. Now, it seems to me that we are measuring cultural change and generational trends in terms of devices. And I think that's a, that's a radical shift. Um, the timeline has shrunk significantly in terms of, you know, you could look at a 30-year period of time and, and find some similarities. Now you have to look at a three-year period of time, maybe. And I, there's nothing scientific to what I'm saying. I just, I feel like this is sort of, sort of where we're at. At the end of the day, and I say this to teenagers all the time when we speak to them, I, I ask them a really simple question. I look them in the eye. I say, why does Snapchat exist? And they kind of look at me and then a few of them will raise their hands and they'll say, well, so that we can keep a better, better touch with our friends for the fun filters, right? They give me all of these reasons. And I lovingly tell them those are great answers, but they're all wrong. The only reason Snapchat exists as a publicly traded company is to make money. The primary way they make money is through your addiction. If you're not addicted to their app, they go bankrupt. You are a slave to the app. That is at the core of all things digital, money. The billions and billions of dollars behind pornography, it's money. Everything that has to do with the devices in our hands, it only exists for one purpose, and that is to make money. When it comes to social media, the primary way social media makes money is through our usage. They're mostly free apps, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is. You don't pay to use any of them unless you're doing some advertising on it. But just as a, a normal consumer, they make money because the more you play, the more the marketers pay for whatever they want to put on their devices. And so it's almost that simple just to step back and go, wait a minute. Am I going to allow, and to say this to kids, are you going to allow them to have that much control over you? Or are you going to step back and go, wait a minute, do I need to pay my friend to keep my snap streak going while I go on a digital free mission trip? Or is that just ridiculous? <laughs> because kids do that, right? And for youth pastors and others in ministry listening to this, I've been told stories of youth pastors who on a device free mission trip heard stories of kids paying their friends back home to keep the snap streak going. That's because... In their head, they've attached the significance to keeping that streak going that compels them to make a really strange decision. Chris, we were discussing Apple's research into their own devices and the impact that it's having. What are some of the things that you are finding in regards to the, the companies that are actually bringing this to us, Facebook, Apple, uh, Snapchat, they may not even be doing any research, but I know Facebook has and Apple has in regards to the impact that it's having on their consumers. Recently, one of Facebook's um, original founders, he's no longer with them, but he spoke, and I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg wasn't real happy about this, but he spoke about sitting around a table in the early days of Facebook. Him, uh, the gentleman who eventually became the CEO of Instagram and Mark, and they sat around a table and they 
fully admitted that they knew that what they were creating was exploiting a weakness in human psychology. And that was this desire for worth, this desire to feel significant, which is at the core of every human being. We all know that that significance can only fully be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Yet they looked at each other, and this was his quote. He said, and we did it anyway. They knowingly went into this knowing that people would become what they are today, and that is hopelessly addicted to their screens. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was a board member from Apple who said, we need to take a look at this. And so they've commissioned a study, and I can't remember the organization who they're going to try to do this with, but they're commissioning a study to try to actually determine some of their own information about what screen time is doing to young people. And um, I don't know. I, I would suspect that their motivation to do so is more from a business continuity point of view. They don't want to be pulled into some clash action lawsuit saying that they're a, you know, a, a party to a whole generation of kids and maybe different problems that even haven't come to light yet. Um, so they're going to proactively in front of it. But at the same time, I, I applaud them for doing so because I think that we're just starting to see some of these um, sort of tipping point sort of decisions that I think will accumulate where we'll all just kind of step back and go, whoa, at the end of the day, this is our fault. Apple didn't force me to buy that iPhone. Nobody forced me to download Snapchat and give it to my seventh grader. This is our fault. Thank you, Chris, for your time today. When we return, we are going to look at the three areas that the digital life is affecting students. Hi, my name is Lindsay Horvett, and I'm the Director of Bible Engagement for Soul Exercises. At Soul Exercises, we know that you want to be a youth worker that builds faith foundations. In order to do that, you need to engage students in the Bible. The problem is that there's a lack of resources, which can be really frustrating. We believe no youth worker should be unequipped to engage students in the Bible. We understand how hard it is to get students engaged in God's Word, which is why we created a proven system built by youth workers for youth workers. Soul Exercises equips churches to engage students in God's word and spiritual disciplines. To learn more about Soul Exercises, head to soulexercises.com and read more about the importance of student Bible engagement and download some free content. We invite you to join this community so you can implement Bible engagement and build faith foundations that will transform the world. As we continue to think about the digital life, let's talk about the three areas where it's affecting students and us today as we think about providing survival skills for students. So physiological, psychological, relational. Jason, let's start with physiological. Let's talk about what that means. Yeah, we were looking at how the digital life, the digital world pushes into our physical world. How does it interact with us physically? How does it change us physically? And so speaking of pushing, I wanted to take a look at, at just the simple concept of notifications. I'm going to now disengage physically from this conversation. I'm going to disengage where I'm at presently, physically, to then interact with our digital device. And so it tends to align with an external trigger, the, the ping, the, the buzz of the phone, and there's this immediate response that we have to check it. Once we know that there's a text message that somebody is trying to get a hold of us when there is a notification about so many likes on our, our social media feed, there's something that's going on physically that we just have to check. If, for example, if someone out there uh, 
incredibly finds our very, very obscure, hard-to-find YouTube channel for Thought Factory. Incredibly right? obscure. <laughs> if you find it, we challenge you, we dare you. And let us if know. If you find it, and if you can't. subscribe, and all of a sudden they're right in the middle of a conversation and a ping comes up, Thought Factory podcast episode now. you got to listen to it. Just release They're going to be so excited. They're going to jump out of everything they're doing, and they're just going to start listening, right? That's what you're talking about. Kind of. It's more of like... The notification comes up, they they feel the notification, they hear the notification, all of a sudden they're they're more aware of that than than paying attention to the conversation. But there is this tendency where you disengage from the physical world to interact with the digital world. And and we just want to remind you something obviously you know that that nothing replaces physical touch. Uh, one of the youth pastors I admire the most has has something that that he does as a as a rule of his own and he doesn't talk about about a lot of publicly but but it makes so much sense his rule is is he wants to have an appropriate physical contact with every student that attends his youth ministry what that means is a high five a side hug a handshake you know uh putting their hand on their shoulder saying hey whatever a pat on the back but um what he does this strategically because and i found this to be true that that just a simple, appropriate physical touch really connects you with the person, and that's physiologically proven to be true through science. And and I'm talking about a youth pastor with uh, one of the largest ministries literally in the country, hundreds of students, but but makes it a point to do this. And I think that that says something about the fact that that we need to do what we can personally to model that in appropriate ways to show the the positivity of physical touch in such a digitally saturated world. And so when we are looking at environments that we are typically interacting with students, we think of the the youth ministry environment. And when I mentioned the disengagement of the physical world and we we interact with the digital world, what it tends to do is and I'm I'm sure you've experienced it, I've experienced it, the fubbing of somebody going, "Oh, now my phone is more important than this conversation. And you get fubbed what they have termed. And you you see this person disengage, but then it, there's this tendency that it's not even just coming back to the conversation. It's like they've lost place of where the conversation was even at, if they even interject back into the conversation. And so when we're looking at environments where we're, we're leading, you have students that are disengaging when they start to interact with their phones or their digital devices. And so are we intentional in creating an environment that is saying, you know what, in the next hour, can you just not engage in with your phone or your mobile device or whatever it may be and say there's a, a no phone zone or be intentional with the students that are disengaged. You may see students outside. You may see students just sitting by themselves on their phone. Are we as adults intentional in going up and engaging them into a physical world, into the physical presence, that environment of youth ministry? Are we saying right now it's more important to engage in actual relationships than being engaged with your phone or mobile device before, after, but also during the program? Yes. You know, there's times when... Students will sit in the back and will be on their device. And when I was a youth pastor, I would say it's our fault when the students are disengaged because as adults, 
We are to recognize that. We are to be sitting amongst them, not by ourselves, not as a group of leaders. Not the gauntlet in the back, right, the classic exactly. yeah, wall of adults. But to be interjected amongst the audience of students. And when they are disengaged, it's it's because we aren't engaging them or being around them to engage them. And so just our presence alone inside that audience tends to raise the level of engagement. Yeah, I, I've noticed this with uh, with our environment that we do throughout the summer throughout you know, the United States with NTS camp and being very intentional over the last three years, seeing our intentionality really pay off in our environments and seeing much more engagement. We, we were beginning to see that slip a little bit as technology just continues to march more and more into every moment of our lives. And I would say in the youth ministry I'm involved in now, as I look around the room, I just want to give a shout out to the our adult leaders and volunteers there because they do such a great job modeling that because us modeling it as adults is just as important. So we're sitting there, we may get a text from a family member, we may get a sports update, we may get a YouTube notification. And it's easy for us to maybe pull out our phone and just within a few seconds kind of jump into that world and jump back out or step to the back of the room. But uh, students are watching us as adults, right? They, 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 they're paying attention to how we model that. So that's really important as well to think about. Now, we've talked about physiological. Let's talk about psychological. And Jason, get us into that. Talk about you know how things like notifications, autoplay, um, what are they doing to us psychologically? Yeah, it's not just by chance that Facebook and Netflix have, have this autoplay feature where there is this tendency where you get done watching one video and by default, it just starts playing the next video and it's, it keeps the consumer engaged in that medium. So Netflix has that feature, not so that, that they know more what you like than, than you do. It's to keep you engaged, to keep you just in front of their device. And so Netflix, Facebook, there's this tendency to keep you engaged and there is this tendency to control you. It's not just so that they want you to use the device. What does that really ultimately mean? When they get you to engage in their medium, their, their product, it's money in their pocket. And so the longer you are engaging it, the more money they're making, whether it's in ads, whether it's the products that get sold through that, it's more money because you're using their product. And, the, you know, the fear of missing out thing, you know, always thinking, I, I need to know the latest deal. So it comes up in conversation all the time. Hey, think about how much digital uh, feed interacts with our physical conversations with people. A lot of the content matter that we're talking about is what we're seeing on our social media feeds. You know, hey, I heard someone, you know, in government, president or another political leader or a celebrity said this or people are talking about this, this is trending, and that tends to trend. And so if we don't know what's going on, we have this fear like, oh, I got to I gotta check my phone as often as I can so I know what's going on, so I'm up to date. And I think we need to release that fear. And I, I'm just finding more and more, I think fear drives so much. Like, I don't want to miss out. And, um, and Jason, you found something interesting that uh, about a leaked Facebook internal memo. In 2017, a leaked Facebook internal memo came about, came to our attention more publicly in regards to how they identify teens. And when they identify teens, it 
they can identify their insecurities, whether they're feeling worthless, whether they need a confidence boost. There's this, this ability that Facebook has to know when you are down and prey on it and pretty much has an algorithm or, or some method to be able to keep you uh, engaged with Facebook and know when you are feeling worthless. So what do you need? So you need certain things. And there's this psychological dependency on Instagram likes and on uh, Facebook comments and this dependency that I need to know what people think. But likes and and comments don't fix the psychological need, this deeper need that we have. Ultimately, they know what they're doing to us. And we're, we're being manipulated. We are. Let's talk about the snap streak. Probably know what that is. It's two users sending snaps, pictures, whatever, videos of each other. And it measures on Snapchat the number of days you do that. So the more you do it, the higher your snap streak goes. Students get into the hundreds, uh, you know, in just days in a row. And it becomes an addictive thing. And again, we've talked about this and Chris is talking about this with us. Snap, Snapchat's not doing this for our benefit so that we can connect with each other. They're doing it to make money. That's the bottom line. And there's this rule of reciprocation where we have this need to respond to a positive action with another positive action. And we would just suggest when it comes to the the psychology of social media, the internet, that you need to publicly address as a youth worker or a parent with your students that this thing like Snapstreak, you need to publicly address, talk to them about what that's like because you really can become addicted. You can become a slave. You can build your life around the Snapstreak. And we've seen it over and over. And Jason and I were talking earlier, it's compared to like waiting in line for some, let's say you're waiting in line at an amusement park for a ride and you're a half hour in and you know you've got an hour and a half to go. And the longer you wait, the more bought in you are to that experience. So you would say, well, I got an hour and a half to go, but I've already spent a half hour in line. I've already, so if I get out of line now, I will have wasted a half hour. And that's the same psychology with things like the snap streak. The longer you do it, the more you're bought in. And then the more grip it has on you. And I think we need to say to students, you know, as strange and as ridiculous as this might sound, it's okay to end the snap streak just for the sake of your own sanity. The whole concept of snap streaks is to keep you engaged, keep you bought in, keep you in this environment where you're using somebody else's product. But the entire concept is like, what's the point? If you sit down and and just think about that, what is the point of doing that? Snapchat is just going, I'm making money. I don't care. You who are using it are going, yeah, it just engages me with somebody else. It keeps me connected with somebody else. But all you're doing is, is, is being preoccupied by sending pictures and videos to somebody else. Like, what's the deeper purpose behind it? And, and then you find yourself in line. I've been doing this for so long. I don't want to stop now because then all the time that I've already put into it is a waste. And so we, we just keep standing in line and we keep doing it. And we're like, I, I, how much longer is this going to go? I don't know, but I've invested so much time into it. So I'm going to keep standing here. Right. So that's the psychology. Let's talk about relationships, the relational aspect of 
the internet of social media and and giving students 21st century digital survival skills it's affecting relationships the internet has affected everything from uh, not only how we consume but how we relate to each other and 57% of students teens according to Pew Research are saying they've met a new friend online and gameplay is uh, and social media they're the most common ways that they're connecting with new friends and people online the stats itself kind of reveal that boys are more likely than girls to make online friends 61% of boys compared to 52% of girls and boys tend to find friends through online gaming that medium is where boys are finding more uh, friends where girls are finding it more on social media um, just the your standard social media platforms so we're also through Pew, they're saying 79% of students um, use instant messaging. 27% of them are using it daily. That, For many of them, that replaces email. And as a sixth-grade boys small group leader, all my students have email, most of them even beyond their school email. But instant messaging seems to be either another platform or even replacing email. 72% of all teams spend time with friends via social media. 23% do so daily. That doesn't seem to be surprising at all. 72% of all teens uh, being immersed into social media. 52% of all teens spend time with their friends playing video games. Uh, 42% of all teens spend time with friends on messaging apps such as Kick and WhatsApp. Another interesting piece of, of stats is, is when... Boys and girls meet somebody new. When they are introduced to somebody, whether they come across somebody online, it's found that 38% of all teen boys share their gaming handle as one of the first three pieces of information exchanged when they meet someone they would like to be friends with. And then 62% of teens share their social media username as one of their first pieces of information. So it's like, hey, what's your name? Where do you go to school? What's your username? It's the, one of the top three pieces of information they exchange when they meet somebody online and want to be friends with them. So they're obviously connecting in the digital world with people that, uh, what we found, only 20% they'll ever meet in person of the people they're meeting online. So obviously, we're gonna, I'm going to say something that's completely, ridiculously obvious, is that technology is here to stay. We can't ignore it, but we... As guides in their lives, we must guide students and parents into learning what it means to redeem that. And when I think about that, I was thinking about how the response of the church when Bibles first were printed with the Gutenberg Press, we mentioned that earlier in the episode, when they began to publish Bibles, church leadership kind of freaked out. They outlawed it. People literally died over this issue because if you were lucky in your town or city where you lived— your local congregation and church building had a Bible that was a lot of times literally chained to the pulpit. So there's only one in town. But as this began to, as, as, the, as the press began to open up avenues for the common person to have the Bible, that became an issue and the church resisted it. And as you look back, they missed maybe the greatest opportunity at that moment because now all of a sudden you're talking about God's Word, the Bible, being a, being able to be accessed by everyone, and they did that because they were afraid. And I think here's the bottom line. When it comes to technology, we can take a fear-based approach, 
or we can take a faith-based approach. And what we want to help through this series, and we're excited about the next episode. We have Chris McKenna back. We're going to talk about students and social media. We hope that you join us for that. But but it's this whole idea is we want to help all of us here have a faith-based approach. It's easy for fear to creep in. It's easy to be afraid. It's easy to want to just hole up in a cave and not have to deal with this, but we have to because it's the world in which we live. So let's learn how to take a faith-based approach to technology. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, whose vision is to see new generations transformed in Christ to further the kingdom of God. Learn more at neverthesame.org.